If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we have been moving through the story of David, and now uh, we have David probably, as we talked about last week, still at the pinnacle uh, of his reign and, and doing really well. We, we left off last week with, with David remembering a, a covenant and promise that he had made with Jonathan uh, to show kindness and goodness to the descendants of Saul. And so he brings in Mephibosheth, and he is able to dine at the house and the palace of David uh, all the days of his life, and the property is restored to the, the uh, descendants of Saul. And we, so we saw the great story there uh, of keeping our covenant, keeping our word, uh, and also the graciousness uh, that we see of David, and paralleled that to how God is gracious with us. Uh, in chapter 11, we, we still have David ruling in righteousness and justice over the, the nation of Israel. Uh, but unfortunately, this is, this is where things fall apart in, in chapter 11. And in the first four verses, where it's really they, those four verses set the scene of the sin that, that David is committing. And I want you to, to notice how the scriptures describe where the temptation came about. Chapter 11 and verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. And so David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and afterwards she returned home. Let's just stop there uh, in, our, in our story today. Uh, this, this is interesting, I think, what the scriptures do in describing uh, the problem that is set before us. Notice in verse 1, the emphasis that is made, it seems, on where David should have been. Notice verse 1 begins, it's a springtime, and this is the time when the, the captains and the kings, they all go out and are with their armies to march out into battle. And it seems to be underlined for us at the end of verse 11, David did not do that. We're not told why, but... It seems the scriptures are telling us that would have been his usual place. He should have been out in battle uh, where Joab is engaged in war uh, against the Ammonites here. But, but David remains uh, back, at, back in Jerusalem, back by himself. And notice verse 2 makes a similar point. Verse 2 talks about it's the, one, it's the evening and David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. Now, it seems when you go dig into that word evening, it means kind of the beginning of the evening. It's perhaps just uh, beginning of sundown. It's just starting to get dark or dusk. And, and it's interesting that we're told in verse 2, he apparently was laying in bed. <laughs> and decides, well, I'm going to kind of get up and stroll around the rooftop for a while. And what I find interesting is, as we begin the story, I think what the scriptures are describing in this temptation that strikes uh, David right here from the get-go is a reminder that temptations are strong when we're idle, when we, we don't have anything to do. Have you ever noticed that in your life? It's kind of when boredom creeps in and you're just not really all that busy that 
then your mind might begin to wander. Then that's when things kind of start becoming a little more appealing. You know, when you're when you're real busy, when you got your nose to the grind, you don't have an awful lot of things to think about. And it's find it interesting that the first two verses set before us. Well, if David would have been out where all the other kings usually are this time of year, this whole scene wouldn't have unfolded. If David had not decided to stay back, but was rather engaged in war against the Ammonites, we wouldn't be reading the rest of these verses. And verse 2 does the exact same thing. What's David doing? Is, is he administering over the affairs of Israel? Is he working late as, as the, the government king? No, he's laying in bed and just decides to get up and stroll around because it seems he's got to either stretch his legs or has nothing better to do. That's, that seems to be the painting that's given to us. And I think it's important to see where this, this all begins with David is just simply the inability to be occupied, this inability to be busy. And I believe the scriptures repeatedly instruct us to be cautious and careful of, of downtime, to be careful when we are not active and not busy because temptations can arise. Uh, Paul said it this way in Ephesians 5.15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of your time, or some versions redeeming the time, because the days are evil. You see what Paul was saying there? Be careful about what you do with your time. Because if you're not making the best use of your time, understand the days are evil. You're going to find some things that you shouldn't be finding. You need to be careful in what you're doing and be sure you're not just wasting your time away because you know what you will find. You're going to find some bad stuff if you just are wasting your time away and not engaged in wholesome and good things. This is what Paul instructed the widows in the same way. He instructed the widows who were under 60, he told them to remarry, and he told them why. He said at the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They are not only idle, but they are also gossips and busybodies saying things they shouldn't say. Why are they being gossips and busybodies? Because they're idle. They don't have anything to do. And that's what Paul was giving these directions of, here's a warning to stay away from these temptations. And so uh, Paul gives the instructions, be married, raise children, do these activities, keep yourself busy so you do not fall into this trap. And I just find that interesting that it seems that the writer here, 2 Samuel 11, really seems to be highlighting those very points of idleness, being careful that we do not fall into idle time, which leads into temptation. And so rather than just sitting around doing nothing, you know, gazing off into space, having boredom, add godly activities to your life. Think about the things and schedule things into your life that you can do that is righteous and pure and wholesome and good. Um, you know, I've, I've always... You always sometimes well sometimes you see it on TV, but you know you get the somebody who wins the bazillion dollars uh, one way or another, and they'll talk about oh, I'm going to keep working. Good, because what else are you going to do with yourself? <laughs> you know, uh, can, do you think of spending filling 24 hours a day every single day of your life without a constant activity of something to do? Uh, there has to be something. God's given us time to be useful, to make the best use of our time. What are we going to do with it? The worst thing you can do is just sit around and do nothing with it. Uh, I have uh, friends who have family who are in that very predicament, who uh, you know, they got in real good with, with money and well, they have nothing to do with themselves. And 
It's not a great existence that way. And we need to be careful about that. Think about the things that you can add to your schedule that are, that are important. If we have so much free time, this idleness, read your Bible. Study your Bible to be prepared for Bible classes. Pray. Help the needy. Visit the sick. Visit those who are shut in. Make meals for those who are suffering. Write cards. Send letters to our visitors. Uh, become a Bible class teacher uh, and prepare for those classes. Volunteer to do some of the administrative things around, around here at the building. Ask me. I can put you to work. There's lots of things that, that, that can be done. And I want you just to think about the times where you have slipped or where you have felt great temptation or weakness. And I suggest to you that in many of those cases you will find is that we had downtime or alone time where there's nobody around and I've got nothing to do. And so then the mind wanders, then the temptations present themselves. And this seems to be then the picture of what is given to us with David as we begin our story. What's also interesting to our story is the way David ignores all the warning signs. And I find it interesting when David, verse 3, he, he gets, you know, you can imagine, uh, he gets one of his messengers and, you know, who is that? Did you notice the answer was not, well, that's Bathsheba. Now, the answer is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. It's almost as if the messenger goes, I know what you're thinking, David. David, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. <laughs> you know, earth to David. Don't do what you're thinking about doing. That She's married is really what I think the messenger is saying to him. And I find it interesting that he completely ignores that. Verse 4, go and bring her to me. Uh, bad move, another uh, uh, big warning my, fa my father always taught me growing up as a kid. He told me, son, don't be alone with a woman. <laughs> and he goes, I trust you, but don't be alone. Big temptation there. And this is what David sets up for himself. Here's some alone time with Bathsheba. Bathsheba obeys the command of the king, comes over. Not gonna, nothing good going to happen from that. Be warned, be careful. And so isn't it interesting, just in those first four verses... All of these warnings that are thrown up as we begin the story of this great temptation uh, that David falls into as we see idleness and disregard for the warning of the messenger here of this. This woman is married and then, of course, bringing her over uh, at, at this time. And so David, I can just imagine the scene. There's not a, not a lot that goes on between verse 4 and verse 5. What we have at the end of verse 4 is afterwards she returned home. And, and you can imagine David thought, well, you know, no big deal, you know. Uh, Uh, got away with that sin. Nobody's going to know the better. Uh, got, got to be with this very beautiful woman, and so everything's going to be just, just fine. And then verse 5 gives us the problem. And verse 5 says, The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. And you just imagine as that message un unfurled, and you read, read the words, David, I'm, I'm pregnant. Now you got a problem. Oh. I try to warn my, my teenagers when I've talked to them in our in our Bible studies and discussions about sexual morality, I try to tell them, think of that picture. Just imagine that scene. Imagine how your life just went upside down if you act sexually immoral and that happens. Now what are you going to do with yourself? And this is the, the quandary that David now has presented. Now what am I going to do? Now you've got a big problem. Now this is going to be known to everybody. And so what now what we're going to see in our story is David's going to try to figure out, well, what can we do to cover this up? What can we do to make sure that nobody knows the bad thing that I've done? And so let's see what David comes up with. Verse 6, 
David sends orders to Joab. Again, David should have probably been out there is what verse 1 tells us. And he he says to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And so Joab sent him. And David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. And, uh, you know, I I just have to imagine Uriah, just trying to visualize a scene, has to think, when have you ever called me to to tell me about the war, you know? (laughs) Why am I here to inform you about this? This has to seem kind of strange to Uriah. And so verse 8, then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the the palace and and a, a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with his master's servants and did not go down to the house. And so here's David's thought. Here's plan A. Bring Uriah home. Send him home. He'll go home and be with his wife. And then there won't be any mischief-looking thing whatsoever. It will be Uriah's baby. Nobody will know it was me. But Uriah is a pretty honorable guy. And he doesn't decide to go home. He decides to sleep basically at the front door here of the palace. And so, verse 10, it's reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. I can just imagine David gets that message from the messenger. You know what? Uriah didn't go home. Like, (laughs) why didn't he go home? I'm working a plan here. Get him to go home. And so, David questions Uriah, verse 10, why haven't you, why haven't you just come on from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Notice Uriah's response. Verse 11. Uriah answered, David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. You know what Uriah says? He says, I'm a soldier with the rest of the people out there. Why should I enjoy the privileges of going home and and get to sleep in a warm bed and eat eat and drink and all that? Why should I get to to do that? I'm not going to be any different than anybody else who's out there in battle. Uriah is a pretty honorable guy. In verse 12, David says to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and, and the next and so now it's time for plan B, all right? Okay, plan A isn't going to work, so let's go plan B. Verse 13, when David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, David got him drunk and went out to the, in the evening to lie down. On, he went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. Plan B, let's get Uriah drunk and then he'll go home and then it won't look like anything unseemly has happened. But even drunk, Uriah is not going home. Instead, he stays there in the palace with the servants. Time for plan C. Verse 14. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. He didn't know he was carrying his own death warrant as he took this message back to Joab. You imagine, here's the trust that David has in Uriah that he knew Uriah wouldn't unroll that message. Takes that message to Joab. Joab opens the message, verse 16. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the, be- in the place where they knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. And so verses 18 through, through 22, the message is sent back to David that Uriah is dead. And so what we have then is that description given there. And then verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight and against the city and demolish it. Uh, encourage him. And so you have 
David telling Joab, don't worry about it. It's all right. Everybody dies in battle. And so David, David seems to be completely unmoved by what he's done here. He doesn't seem to be bothered by this whatsoever. Well, you know, people die in battle. That's the way things go. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of the mourning ended, David had had her brought into his house. This might be plan D. And now notice she became his wife and bore him a son. Notice the final words, though, of chapter 11. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. God was not putting any seal of approval on this. And what David had done was awful. And in fact, what we see David doing really is worse than the initial sin itself. And I want us to see uh, that that's really one of the problems that takes place here. Is that uh, David, then instead of just admitting it and going, you know what, we, we had a mistake there. Uh, had all that idle time. I shouldn't, shouldn't have been, uh, shouldn't have been home. Should have been out there in battle. He, he doesn't do all that. Uh, instead, he says, "You know what? I'm going to go through all of these plans to try to cover up my sin. I've got all these great ideas on how I can make sure nobody's going to ever know. And I don't know. Maybe you've got the answer, but I still scratch my head. I'm still trying to figure out David's plan on why having Uriah killed was going to help." Well, yeah, he got, got married to Bathsheba and uh, suddenly, oh, she's got a kid. Nobody's going to go, oh, how convenient. I mean, hello. <laughs> uh, that, that wasn't going to work. And, and I think that's, that's important to see in our story. Suddenly you're going to think that, oh, there's been nothing unseemly that's gone on here. And I think it's so awful. But I, I think that's the nature of sin, is that we rationalize these cover-ups. We rationalize how we can commit more sins and that way we can cover up this sin. And, and that's going to make it okay. And plunging ourselves into these sins uh, cause us to say and do an awful lot of foolish things. Uh, consider all the things that, that, that David did here. Uh, tons of lies and deception now takes place. Oh, I'm just going to lie about these things, about what's really going on. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we do when we sin, is that we want to try to cover things up. And sincerely, certainly in the life of David, the things that he did after the, the adultery are far worse than what was going than, than the, the sin itself. Well, it just accept what you have done is wrong, but then to compound that with deception and to compound that with death, I don't know what he was thinking, but I think this is what we need to, to learn from it is, is, first of all, when we sin, especially in talking about sexual sin, we lie to our families, we lie to our spouse, lie to our friends, lie to our brethren, lie to the leaders and elders of a church, we lie to people who are closest to us. We're going to perpetuate deception so that nobody knows the awful things that we've done. And often... What that comes down to is arrogance. The arrogance to think that nobody's going to ever know. That we have the ability to cover up all the consequences of our sins that we have done. And that's outright foolish. It is an outright arrogance to think that our sins are never going to come to light. That nobody's going to ever know the bad things that we've done. And that's what David is thinking. 
David is going through the thought process. Well, how many different ways can I cover this up so nobody's going to know? Okay, we'll bring Uriah home. That doesn't work. We'll get Uriah drunk. That doesn't work. We'll get him killed. Uh, unbelievable. But that's the arrogance that sin brings to us, is the belief that nobody's ever going to know that we've committed that sin. That's the lie that sin brings. That's what Satan tries to tell us. Is that, oh, if you, if you commit that adultery, nobody's going to ever know. Sexual morality, no one's going to know if you do that. You can cover that up, nobody's going to ever know. That's the great sin of the computer and pornography. Nobody's going to ever know. It's lies. It's just lies. And then some of it is just simply pride. We don't want anybody to know that we've slipped up. You know, David could have just said, mistake, huge, huge mistake. But too much pride as king of Israel to want to admit something like that. Better to lie and kill, to cover up, to maintain his image, and to maintain his reputation and honor of who he is. And that really is the crush of sin is that one sin begets another sin. And you commit this sin, and that will bring about that sin. And if i got a lie here, then I'm going to have to deceive over here. And if I commit this act of stealing, that's going to bring about this sin over here. And we have sexual morality here, that's going to bring about this sin over here. And it just continues to be a web of sins. I like what the Scriptures remind us about. You know, don't be fooled. Your sin's going to catch up with you. Don't be fooled to think that sin does not eventually catch up. And as we're going to see in the story, and we're not told how much time goes by between chapter 11 and chapter 12, but it seems that David thinks everything is A-OK. That's probably one of the more stunning features of reading this story is that David has committed adultery, has great lies and deception, has killed a man... But since nobody knows, he thinks he's A-OK. Everything's just fine. Isn't that the way we feel about sin? Is if nobody knows we're all right, we can kind of pretend that everything's going OK and we can come here to services and we can look like great Christians because nobody knows what's going on on Monday through Saturday. Nobody has any idea of all the filth that we may have plunged ourselves into during the week. Nobody knows. And so therefore, I can still be high, holy, good-looking, righteous Christian. What a warning that the life of David brings to us is that eventually the sin is going to come around. Eventually, you and I pay the consequences for those sins. And that's what David is going to quickly find out here. And not only about your sins going to catch up with you, the, those final words of chapter 11 ought to be outright frightening, is that God saw all of that. God saw every single move that David made there from start to finish. Every single bit, God knew exactly what was going on. And we like to pull the wool over our own eyes and think that God doesn't see what we're doing in secret. God has no idea. And David was able to pull off this great deception so all of Israel may not have known that this pregnancy was actually by him through an adultery. And so by killing Uriah, nobody had any idea. Great fooling. But sin was going to find him out and God certainly knew the things that he had done. 
Sin likes to lie to us and tell us, you can commit this sin, nobody will know the better, and your life will still be normal, and nothing will ever change. Commit this sin, enjoy the pleasures of temptation and sin, nobody will know, and your life will never change. It will still be the same life. Wrong and wrong in every way. And for us to think that nobody's going to ever know is false. To think that God does not know is false. And to think that our lives are not affected is false. Don't listen to the deception of Satan. He lies about that. He lets you think that you're going to be fine. And especially with sexual sin. That's exactly what the lie is in sexual sin. Is that, oh, you'll be able to keep your family. You'll be able to keep your family. Everything will be just fine. You'll keep your kids, keep your spouse. Go ahead, have an affair. Go ahead, be with other people. Everything will be fine. Are you kidding? Are you crazy? But even in my own counseling of people and in many of things that I've read, that's exactly the thought process. Is that as long as nobody knows, I'll be able to have whatever I want to have and I can commit sexual sins and keep my family the way it is. You're wrong. And that's what we're going to see the problem with David. Chapter 12. Chapter 12 now brings in the story. The Lord sends David, sends Nathan to David. There's something we could do a whole lesson on just how Nathan goes about this. <laughs> Nathan is is quite interesting how he's gonna burst David's bubble because Nathan doesn't come in and go, You stinking adulterer and murderer. Who do you think? I mean, he doesn't do that. I mean, the Marley Mike tactic would have been, well, you're dumb, David. Do you think you're going to get away with that? But look at what, what Nathan does here. Great story. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing but one small ewe lamb and he had brought, that he had bought. It lived and grew up with him and his children. He shared its meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the guest. You have to love the little story here. Here is this poor man, and he has this one sheep. And boy, does he love that sheep. They share their meals together. They drink their drinks together. He even sleeps with the sheep. Now, this story means nothing to me because I just have no concern for animals whatsoever. And I'm just outright disgusted about sleeping with your animal in your arms and all that. And I just think the guy's a kook. But any bit as it may, it's trying to present the picture of, look how much this person cared for this animal. It was the one lamb that he had. He had nothing else in his life but the lamb. And this man comes along, this rich man, who has gobs of lambs and gobs of cattle and takes that one poor man's lamb and slaughters him. Verse 5, David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he has done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that one. I, I, I have to see in that picture... David is just incensed. He's outraged. When Nathan tells the story, he's like, who is this man? He needs to die and give this poor man four lambs. And Nathan, in the straightest face, four words. 
You are the man. I have to think the color went out of David's face. Somebody knew what he had done. His sin had caught up with him. God knew what had taken place. And you just pronounced your own judgment. You deserve to die for what you've done. Nathan goes on in verse 7. And he describes, we won't read all of this for the sake of time, but he describes, and he says, the Lord blessed you with everything. The Lord has given you so much. In fact, if you would have asked of the Lord, he would have given you all that and more. He would give you anything. He's, he's blessing you. Look, you're, you're, you're king over Israel. And all that you had to do, if that were not enough, is ask and God could have given you anything else. <laughs> Verse 9 of chapter 12, Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I considered evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Consequence number one, Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. Nathan hits the point very well when Nathan just says, what were you thinking? You had all the blessings of God given to you. Look at all the advantages that you had. Look how God had taken care of you. Look at all the wealth and prosperity you had. And yet you shunned all that and chose to do something that was against God's law. Boy, do we not need to hear those words to ourselves. Look at all that God has done for us. Look at all that God has given to us. And yet we still choose to do things that are a violation of God's law. Has God not done enough? Are we not wealthy enough? Do we not have all that we need enough? That we still need to stand in the face of God, spit at His commands and commit more sins? That's what Nathan just told David. What were you thinking? Why would we have that attitude? And yet that's exactly what we do when we sin. As we are making that kind of choice against God. Consequence one, the sword will never depart. If you read the rest of 2 Samuel, as we've done in our Sunday night studies, the rest of 2 Samuel is about all sorts of turmoil. David was going to watch son after son after son die by the sword. Starting with the child born through this adulterous affair, as it's described in just a couple of the verses. Uh, it's awful de- descriptions are given here of consequences. Verse 11, uh, He says, I'm going to take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them publicly. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and brought daylight. To make matters worse, that verse 11 was fulfilled by his son, Absalom. Awful enough to have your wives publicly slept with before all of Israel, but have it be your son do it. Consequence two. And the consequence three, as we just mentioned, is that the son born of this affair was going to die. The only mercy that's given here is going to be in just a moment at the end of, 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 of verse 13. But after describing this, this story, and after describing what David had done with the blessings and throwing them away, I want you to see the response of David in verse 13. The response of David is not, you know, guys are going to be guys. You know, yeah, things are tough. I, I had had to let out the stress. You know, I'm running as king of Israel. I mean, come on, Nathan. <coughs> and David's response is not, you know, she shouldn't have been where I could have seen her from my rooftop. 
proper response. I have sinned against the Lord. Should have said that when the message was unfurled, I'm pregnant. It should have rung in his ears. I've sinned against the Lord and stopped the chaos right there. He didn't do it there. At least he finally does it now. Old King Saul cracks me up. When Samuel confronts Saul of sin, Saul says, I have sinned against the Lord, but then continues talking and says, now go honor me before the people. He's still concerned about all these other things. David is genuinely concerned about his own sin. And that's what he says before Nathan. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. The rest of verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. That's the only mercy granted in this section at all. Is that David certainly could have been struck down by God for what he had done. I submit to you, though, the consequences were extreme and severe of what took place. In verse 14, because you treat the Lord with contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. And Nathan went home. No sitting down with David and going, well, you know, I know it's real tough. He just left. There you go. Bad choices. I would like for you to turn over to Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 is born out of this scene. And we'll leave our story out of Psalm 51 this morning. Because I want you to see that David did not just simply go, oh, I sinned against the Lord. There was no flippant attitude here by David about, oh, yeah, you're right, I messed up, so sorry. Uh, let, let's get on with life and move on. You know, we're all human, we all sin, we all drop the ball, no big deal. Not at all. I want you to see that his heart is not at all in that frame of mind. He is extremely sorrowful. He is very upset about what he has done. Notice Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast mercy. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. We need to talk like that to God when we sin. I mean, you see an upset man in these very words. There is no warm-up here of, man, you know, that's the way things happen. And uh, you know, Look at, the, look at I need mercy, steadfast love, abundant mercy. Notice the end of verse 1, blot out my transgressions, wash me, cleanse me. My sin is ever before me. He's just standing before God saying, I am guilty. I've broken your rules. I've broken the commands. I'm in trouble. Wash me and cleanse me. Verse 4, against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You notice that David doesn't say, now, you know, I think the penalty that I'm paying is a little rough. I mean, the sword never leaving my house, that my family's going to be just going through death and, 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 and dire circumstances, and my son is going to die. And my wives are going to be publicly humiliated before of all of Israel. That's too much. He doesn't say that. Notice what he says at the end of verse 4. His judgments are justified. The thing that God has decreed, that is okay. You're right, Lord. I have done wrong. I deserve judgment. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. Did my mother conceive me? I believe this is hyperbole to say, I am full of sin. And who wouldn't feel that way after adultery, lies, and murder? And he's saying, from head to toe, I am guilty. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth 
in the inward being. You seek to teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion for your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you'll delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. I want you to see the response of David. David is not just, oh, I've sinned. Look at the the passion behind how he's pleading to God. This cry for mercy. He says, create in me a clean heart. Remove the sinfulness. Help me to be what you want me to be, Lord. Take away this pain. Take away the guilt. And even more so as he describes how how awful he is, he says, don't hide your face from me. Don't don't remove yourself from me. I'm, I'm worthy of being cast aside because of my sins. Which is exactly what sin does. Separates us from God. And David recognizes that and says, don't cast me aside. Don't remove me from your presence. Even though it's exactly what I deserve to have happen. And I love verses 15, 16, and 17 because David understood what was necessary. David did not do a stall of, okay, Samuel, offer a sacrifice for me. Everything will be all better. That was insufficient. And David knew it. Notice verse 16. You will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. If there was something I could do, Lord, to fix this, I'd fix it. But a sacrifice is not going to cut it. Burning up an animal on the altar doesn't do anything for me. And notice what he says, what he's going to do. Verse 17, the only thing I can do is come before God with a broken and contrite heart. That's all David had, was to come before God on his knees and say, I blew it. Do not destroy me. Do not kill me. Do not remove your mercy from me. Give me a clean heart. Help me to turn around and do better. And that's the plea that David gives before God is, wow, am I in sin? And wow, I need the mercy and grace of God. We need to come to God with that kind of attitude. Too often, our attitude towards sin is flippant and uncaring. We take the grace of God and we treat it as something that's common. God will forgive me of my sins. God will take it away. And we don't come before God with a really penitent, sorrowful heart that humbly comes before God that says, I do not deserve my sin to be removed, but I beg you to do it. And that's what David is doing here. He's on his hands and knees before God begging for mercy. And we ought to see ourselves in that 
condition and that relationship with God is that we don't have any card to play with God. We are doomed by our sins. There is none of us in here who can raise our hands and say, well, we are innocent. We've never done anything wrong. We're not liars like David. We've never violated the laws. Right. We've never done the things that David has done. Come on. We're deeply sinful. The only response is to come before God and beg for mercy. And I want to leave you this morning with what the New Testament scriptures tell us to do and how to beg for mercy before God. 1 Peter 3.21 says, The baptism which like water now saves you. Baptism does not save by removing dirt from the body. Baptism is a request to God for a clear conscience. You know, that's what, what David was asking for. David was asking for a clean heart. He was asking to be cleansed because of what he had done. He needed that guilt removed, and he needed the blood-stained hands of what he had committed to be cleansed. And Peter says, if you want to ask for a clear conscience, there's only one way to get your conscience clear. You go before God, and you ask Him to remove your sins through baptism. And it's only because Jesus Christ has come to this earth and because he suffered and died and raised from the dead, that we have any chance to get on our knees before God and beg him for mercy. And I hope that we'll think about the gravity of sin, and we will think about the weight of it and what it means, and how that drives a stake into the heart of God. And think about how our sin is considered by God just evil. So you go for this week, I'll just leave you with the lessons that we've looked at. Fill your life with spiritual activities. Don't allow idleness to creep in so that you are swayed away to follow the things of Satan. When you do sin, do not compound the sin. Oh, we fall into that temptation. Do not compound the sin. Confess your sin. Own up to your sin. Be responsible about your sin. Be accountable Tell your spouse, tell your brethren, confess it to God himself and say, I have done wrong and I need your mercy. Don't think you're going to get away with your sin. Your sin will find you out and God knows what you've done. And so respond to your sin by being moved to sorrow and asking God for forgiveness. If you have not been immersed in water, your sins stay on you and you need to request God to take away your sins. And we invite you as we sing this song to come forward and say, I need to have my sins taken away. And by being immersed in water, you're asking God to remove the sins of the flesh and to be raised up to walk in newness of life. Won't you do that now while we stand and while we sing?